Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 300. Yes, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy for this very special episode, show 300, how about that? Well, yes, well, I think we've reached a bit of a milestone here, a little celebration in my head is going on, honestly, what can I say, do you know what I mean, it's like show 300, it's probably show 400 and odd if you want to count it, but this is the kind of where we changed it from, you know, kind of what Starship Sofa was and so what it is there now and all your science fiction magazine of the finest quality. And as usual, I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. It is a special show. We have Harry Turtledove. Not one, not two, not three, not four, but five stories by the great science fiction writer Harry Turtledove. Like I say, a little celebration of all things Starship Sofa. And before we get into the show, I'll just kind of kind how we came about that. As you know, Adam is the assistant editor and it was kind of, you know, Adam, go out there and see if you can get some stories. And, you know, one of the kind of the big guys there is Harry Turtledove. I've never been able to, you know, snag some stories off him. I've never, you know, tried or anything like that. I think I've done an interview with him. Never had the nerve to ask him for a story. So young Adam went there and it was just like a little kid in a sweet shop. There was that many to choose from. And... Somehow or other, Adam came away with five short stories and thought it'd be a good idea, and which it is, is to put them all in one big show, like a celebration, and, you know, get some of our narrators that have been kind of out there who are just kind of fantastic as well. So we've got all your narrations by Dennis Emily and Amy, as you know, Amy H. So just Nick and uh, Nick Cam, Mike Boris and Iba Amonkus. So there we go. Some fantastic narrators there. So... 
Show 300, what can I say? First off, a big thank you. It has been a bit of a rocky road, a bit of a strange road this year. Do you know what I mean? Kind of, it's been ups and downs, you know, great celebrations, getting nominated again for a Hugo. And, you know, SofaCon, just on, you know, Sunday gone, yeah, doing things like that. Then, you know, the kind of rocky road of kind of finances and everything like that. And, you know, you pull out of the ground there, we're kind of scratching our backsides along some derelict, dusty planet far off. Would we would we survive? And it's been lovely. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of been scary at times, and I'm not kind of shy away from it. You know, we probably wouldn't have been here today if it wasn't for the people listening who's donated, you know, and who's signed up to the monthly donations and just kept it going. And it's lovely because we're going to have a couple of weeks off now, and then just let things tick over, you know, finances and all that kind of nonsense are just ticking over. The monthly donations are coming in, you know what I mean? So it means a lot. A big thank you, and a big thank you just for sticking. You know, I've had lately quite a number of emails from people that's in, oh, Tony, I came along when on show 30, you know, and you're thinking, wow, you're still listening, show 30, you know what I mean? Need medals and pats on backs and everything. So whether you've been there from the very beginning or whether this is your first listen to Starship Sofa, you know, welcome aboard. We have got a fun show. Let's just talk about SofaCon just before we get into the kind of stories. It was awesome, to be quite honest. It just kicked off at five o'clock and I think we kind of closed doors round about half ten. It all seemed to go fine, but that was the kind of scary part, you know what I mean? Well, actually, Dennis, who's doing a narration here, we lost Dennis, we couldn't get Dennis up, his internet went down there, and so Dennis has promised to try and get his little section in. But it's, as it happens, because little time, little dragged on there, and we were kind of able to save a bit of time or make up time with Dennis not being there, which is horrible, but it kind of just meant things were kind of going smoothly, and well, eventually, because Dennis lives in South Africa, something happened there, his internet's been fine, he said, for ages, you know. So we never got Dennis up, unfortunately, which is, like I say, Dennis is going to try and put this one on audio, and next year, Dennis, next year we want you there. But everything else, you know what I mean, it seemed to go all right, and we had, and I've got a special treat for you as well, in this show, we had the SF Signal Geek Sky at the Galaxy Quiz of the Century. Well, I've actually got that recording, so I'm going to play that as well. And I'm not too sure what it'll come over like in audio, do you know what I mean? Because I, I never realised I was kind of probably doing it for audio as well. So there's a couple of Johns in there, and you might get kind of confused with who's answering who and everything like that. But we did have a good laugh and it was, you know, fantastic. And it gives you a little kind of sample of what happened, you know. And like I say, it was fascinating, especially on the, say, the Geek's Guide. You know, you can get kind of six video screens, high def quality there, all coming in, you know, from all over the world. And we can play a quiz game like this, you know, with a combat, myself and Amy, you know, doing it. It was lovely, you know, and I kind of get away without thanking Amy. You know, I've thanked her so many times, but... I kind of need someone, you know, like Ian, who's kind of just professional, do you know what I mean? I kind of splatter around the world in a kind of lackadaisical way, and I kind of need someone, especially on something as big as that, do you know what I mean? We kind of, I think we're about three or four tickets from selling out, you know, at the end, you know, even right up until an hour before, I think I sold four tickets an hour before the event, you know. I was actually worried in case, because I don't know what happens once you kind of hit that limit where they set you. Does it, you know, do they not kind of work? I'm not too sure. So, yeah, I had Amy, and Amy kind of now knows the standard that 
or the level I'm at, you know what I mean? Because we had to go over some questions, you know, just before the questions Amy put up. And I think Amy was thinking when I was saying, Amy, how would you pronounce that word? What's this? What's that? I think Amy was just, you know, head and hands, just thinking, this is going to work. <laughs> Something's going to go horrible. But, you know what I mean? I kinda, after four gins and a, and a <laughs> pint of lager, I was all right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, that's how much. And if, um, I, I'll not put it on, but if you have a look at my little Christmas, my birthday present of my bottle of gin, it's nearly empty. <laughs> yes. I was using my mother's cucumbers that she grew in the garden, because as you know, I've been drinking gin with cucumbers. That's the way to drink it now. So a fine time by all. Like I say, we've got that quiz at the end of the show as well. And we'll, I'll kind of mention little things, what happened throughout. But we first we'll get into the kind of the first short story by Harry Turtledove. Before that, though, I'm sure you'd like to know, I'll give you a little kind of bio on Mr. Harry Turtledove. Harry Norman Turtledove was born in Los Angeles, California, on the 14th of June, 1949. After falling out of his freshman year at Caltech, he attended UCLA, where he received a PhD in Byzantine history in 1977. His dissertation was on the immediate successor of Justinia, a study of the Persian problem and the continuity of change in internal circular affairs in the late Roman Empire during the reign of Justin II, Tiberius II, Constantine. Man, Harry, man, what are you how clever are you? Do you know what I mean? I struggle seeing your sentence there. In 1979, Harry Turtledove published his first two novels, Where Blood and Where Night, under the pseudonym of Eric G. Iverson. Turtledove later explained that his editor at Belmont Towers did not think people would believe the author's real name was Turtledove and suggested that he come up with something more Nordic. He continued to use the name Iverson until 1985 when he published his Herbie Hero and And So To Bed under his real name. In 1980, Turtle worked as a technical writer for the Los Angeles County Office of Education in 1991. He later left the Los Angeles County of Education and turned to writing full-time. From 1986 to 87, he served as a treasurer for the Science Fiction Writers of America. He was married to mystery writer Laura Franco's. They have three daughters, Alison, Rachel and Rebecca. His brother-in-law is fantasy author Stephen Franco's. Harry has been nominated for a number of awards. Must and Shall was nominated for a 1996 Hugo Award for Best Novelette. The 1996 Nebula Award for Best Novelette and received two honourable mentions for the 1995 Sidewise Award for Alternate History. The Two Georges also received honourable mention for the 1995 Sidewise Award for Alternative History. The World War Series received a Sidewise Award for Alternative History honourable mention in 1996. And this story, Lua, is actually narrated by Dennis Lane. How cool is that? And it came out in Analog Science Fiction and Fact in the May 1988 edition, edited by Stanley Schmidt. But that Stan's been around there a while. He's, I think he's packed in there now, but he's been doing that a few years as well. It also came out in Harry's like a collection called Departures. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Lua by Harry Turtledove. Miocene Italy. To be precise, a swamp in Miocene Italy. In what would be Tuscany ten million years from now, 
give or take a few thousand. It certainly smelled like a swamp, Harvey cut a thought, as he squelched through the mud to check his latest trap. The smells of mud, stale water, and rotting vegetation never changed much, the hunter thought, as he scraped his hip boots one after the other on a branch. Or was that never would change? Despite a hundred years of commercial time travel, English tenses remained ill-adapted to the phenomenon. The branch on which he'd cleaned his boots was part of a myrtle shrub. Maybe an uptime botanist could tell the difference between it and its modern equivalent, but Cutter couldn't. The mosquitoes, he thought resentfully as one bit him on the arm, also hadn't changed much. But he wasn't hunting plants, and he wasn't hunting mosquitoes, even if they were hunting him. He was hunting primates for the San Diego Cenozoic Zoo, and he wasn't having a whole lot of luck. Things had been easier on his last run, when he'd brought back a dozen Nothartus, plenty to start a breeding colony, from Eocene North America. Nothartus looked like a lemur and wasn't much smarter than a squirrel. He could have caught a hundred if he'd wanted them. Now he was after larger and smarter game. Hominoids, even offbeat Miocene hominoids like the ones he was after now, were nobody's fools. That wasn't surprising. People and the great apes were the survivors of the hominoid clan. Something squealed in pain and terror out on the firmer ground further east. Cutter's head whipped around. A diceratherium was down and kicking, with several wolfish cynodesmus scrambling over its bulky body and already beginning to feed. Cutter was glad Cynodesmus preferred dry ground. They would have attacked him just as cheerfully as they had the big rhino-like Diceratherium. They had no fear of man. In the Miocene, primates, any primates, were prey, not predators. Calling Cynodesmus wolfish and Diceratherium rhino-like did not really do the beasts justice, Cutter knew. Unlike the plants and the bugs, Miocene mammals resembled their modern equivalents about as much as would clay models made by a talented ten-year-old with a little more imagination than he really needed. As if to prove the point, a small herd of Syndiocerus daintily picked their way around the gorging pack of Cynodesmus. They looked something like deer and something like antelopes, with their striped hides resembling those of zebras. But they had two horns above their eyes and two more halfway down their noses which made them different from anything that had gotten past the Pleistocene. Cutter squelched on. He could see the stand of willow where he'd set this new trap. He could see the net, too, undeployed and empty. He said something rude under his breath. He got up to the trap and saw footprints by the fat, juicy red apple that he'd set out as bait. They were the right kind of footprints. He said something rude out loud. Loud enough, in fact, to scare a flock of Miocene, more or less, sparrows off their perches. They flew away, chirping angrily. Hell with it, he said out loud. He looked around for a reasonably dry patch of ground, took out a ration pack, and ate lunch. He scattered paper and cellophane over the landscape with reckless abandon. All the wrappers were aggressively biodegradable. None of them would show up in the seam of lignite that would memorialise this landscape in the distant present. Temper somewhat restored, he examined the footprints round the snare again. They were the prints of his quarry, all right, 
marks about half as big as his own bare feet would have made, and of the same general shape. The imprints of the beast's supposable great toes, though, were slightly set off from those of the others, and not quite in line with them. Only men and their immediate ancestors had feet fully adapted to walking erect. The hunter started off toward the next stand of willows, a couple of miles away. That one was bigger than this little outpost, and held his camp and three traps. None of them had caught anything either, though one had been robbed the day before yesterday. Several sluggish streams ran between the two copses. Cutter forded them with care. The other day, he had watched a crocodile drag a young ancestral hippo off a stream bank and into the water. He corrected himself. The little hippo hadn't lived long enough to be ancestral to anything. He got to the base camp without being bitten by anything more ferocious than more mosquitoes. Then he checked his traps in this strap of trees. They were all unsprung, though two of them had fresh prints nearby. No wonder the Italian hominoid had a reputation for being hard to catch, Cutter thought. He found droppings under a big shaggy willow and set another trap there. When he suddenly looked up in the middle of the job, he saw brown eyes watching him through the leaves. A moment later, they were gone. He walked back to his camp. That was really too dignified a name for it, he thought. It was just a clearing where he'd pitched a light tent to keep the rain off his sleeping bag. The sun was still in the sky, but he decided to eat anyway. He got out another ration pack. But for the degradable packaging, he knew, the packs were adapted from old military food. Pea rations, tea rations, something like that. He didn't remember the letter. If they'd made soldiers eat stuff like this all the time, he thought disparagingly, no wonder nobody'd fought a war in a long time. He threw away the cup of what, for a lack of a suitably noxious word, was called stew. What dessert comes with this pack? he wondered, feeling rather like little Jack Horner. Instead of a plum, however, he pulled out a cellophane package with four cookies in it. Sighing resignedly, he started to eat one, then stopped and gave it a long look. Be damned, he said, and started to laugh. He glanced back toward where his traps were set, then looked at the cookie again. Why the hell not? How could it make things go worse? Harvey Cutter's nostrils twitched as he walked toward the new exhibit. Be damned, he said. It even stinks like Miocene mud. Good job. Lucy Durr beamed at him. She was second assistant curator in the primate section of the zoo and had designed the enclosure. Glad you approve, she said. The photos you gave us helped a lot in putting it together. Good. I hope they would. Lucy put her hands on the rail and leaned on it as she peered across the moat at the pair of brown-furred creatures on the far side. They're interesting beasts. Miocene hominoids that aren't part of the dryopithecid group that led to the great apes, or the ramopithecids humans are descended from. They're just by themselves. I'm glad we have them. Hardly any zoos do. I believe that. They're bloody hell to catch. From the fossils, they're supposed to have been common around there. Yet couldn't prove it by me. I saw one in a tree for half a second, and I finally managed to catch these two. Other than that, forget it. Cutter reached into his pocket 
pulled out some cream-filled chocolate sandwich cookies and threw them across the moat to the animals he'd captured. The beasts were nimble enough on the ground. On all fours, they hurried over to the cookies. They grabbed them with hands not much different from cutters and greedily gobbled them up. Lucy clucked the horrified cluck of any zookeeper who catches a visitor feeding the animals. Then she glanced over at the hunter. How do you know those are good to eat? They haven't had any here. I know that. And they certainly never had any back in the Miocene. Oh, but they did, Cutter said. Now Lucy was frankly staring at him. He went on. I wasn't having any luck with fruit for bait, and so... You tried something else? Sure, but why cookies? He grinned at her. Well, what would you use if you were going after... Oreopithecus. And as usual, copyright is Mr. Harry Turtledoes for all these stories. Now we'll get into the next short story. Gladly Would He Learn by Harry Turtledove. It came out in Analog in 1991 and again was in Departures for Harry. It is narrated by... The one, the only, Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, again, what can I say? Thank you so much for Sunday and since, you know, since you came, since you listened years ago to me and Kieran yapping on about Alfred Bester and, as you mentioned, all the other writers. Ames, it's been a, it's been a lovely ride having you on there. <laughs> See how easy it is? I can't even put that in. I'm going to have to edit it. Moving on. So the Starship Sova is very proud to pronounce. Present maybe Gladly Would He Learn by Harry Turtledove. Gladly Would He Learn. Only the cold, green-blue glow of mercury vapor lamps lit the campus lot when Ted Collins pulled in. He had to park a long way from the lecture hall. He hauled his attaché case off the front passenger seat and locked the car, Then, already weary from a full day's work, he trudged over the asphalt toward the hall. It was more than half full when he came in. Even so, it was quiet. The rest of the educators there were as worn as he was. Some of the superintendents, administrators, program specialists, and supervisors looked fresh out of college. Others, like him, were a few years older already experienced in managing school district affairs. Whatever their backgrounds, Columns himself was an assistant superintendent for education planning and research. They all had one thing in common. They were all ambitious enough to go to night school to learn what they needed to know to advance in the educational bureaucracy. Professor Vance walked in. She strode briskly to the podium and tapped at the microphone to make sure it worked. Collins took out his notebook and a pen. He'd heard from people who had been through this course that Vance didn't believe in wasting time. (laughs) She didn't. As soon as she found the mic was live, she plunged straight into her lecture. Anyone can be a success at the district level. Policies are blurred there, responsibilities vague. Very often, you never see the actual clients who depend on you for educational services— If you hope to go farther in education, you'll have to lose that pervasive vagueness. You got by with it at the university. You can get by with it at district offices. But it's a fatal handicap in an actual school setting. 
Here's what I mean. By the time that first lecture was done, Collins wondered what had possessed him to want to become a principal in the first place. He thought about dropping the class and staying comfortably in his present job. He shook his head. When he started something, he wasn't the sort to back away from it. He ended up acing Vance's course. He took the others he needed, one or two a semester, always at night, as he could fit them into the rest of his life. He went through an internship program at an actual junior high school campus. He took the state required examination for certification. Before long, he got an interview. The committee let him hang for two weeks before they let him know he'd been accepted. Cran's Elementary School had itself a new principal. When Collins got the news, he threw the biggest party he'd ever given and ended up with the biggest hangover he'd ever had. The hangover eventually went away. As for the size of the party, well, what the hell? With the raise he'd got from his promotion, he could afford it and then some. He started his new job in the fall. It was as challenging as he'd hoped it would be. Budgeting for a single school was a much more complicated and, as Professor Vance had warned so long ago, a much more precise business than planning for district-wide programs where you could always shuffle money between dozens of different accounts. Human relations counted for more at the school site level, too. Little by little, he learned how to build rapport with the faculty. As principal, he also came into contact with pupils, something he'd never done back in the district office. Dealing with them made the problem of handling a staff look simple. But again, he learned. He got on with the rest of his life, too. He married a curriculum specialist from the district office where he'd worked before. He took up golf. After a while, he was shooting in the mid-80s. He grew a mustache. After a while, it turned salt and pepper. Satisfying as his principal's assignment had been, he slowly decided it didn't give him everything he needed. He hated the idea of being in a rut for the rest of his life. He talked things over with his wife. Go for it, she said. I know it'll be tough, even if you don't make it, and so many people don't. You'll be better for the experience, but I think you will. I think you can do it. You're wonderful, he said and kissed her. The very next day, he enrolled in night school again. The moment he walked into his first class, he saw most of his fellow students were folks a lot like him. Solid men and women who'd already built up solid careers, but wanted something more. Oh, there were a couple of people in their early thirties, but only a couple. He knew they were the ones he'd have to watch out for, the whiz kids, the ones on the fast track to the top. He was no whiz kid. He was a grinder. That had always worked till now. He had to hope it would keep on working. Congratulations, Mr. De La Vega said as he walked to the front of the classroom and sat down on the table by the podium. Congratulations just for being here and for wanting to be the best. His smile turned savage. Now we'll see how many of you I can run out of the program over the next 20 weeks. He meant it, too. Nothing was watered down here, nothing simplified to let the slower people keep up. If you couldn't keep up, too bad. Grimly, Collins buckled down to do the work. 
He ended up with a high B in the course and felt prouder of it than of most A's he'd earned. Every course in the whole program turned out to be like that. Collins learned to live on coffee and four hours of sleep a night. At a physical, his doctor warned him that all that coffee could bring on an ulcer. He kept drinking it. Without it, he would have had to quit, and he'd come too far for that. As time went on, he became ever more conscious of the responsibility that came with jobs at the top of the hierarchy. He had to look hard at himself to find out whether he truly wanted it. Without false modesty, he decided he did. Before he was even allowed to take the exams at the end of the program, he had to convince an interview board he was worthy. The exams themselves made the ones he'd taken to qualify for principal look like a pop quiz. When he learned he'd passed, everybody at his school gave him a party. He got his picture in the local paper, along with half a dozen other tired-looking people. More interviews. Now he could pick and choose because there were always more jobs than people qualified to fill them. He finally settled on one not far from where he lived in a top-notch school. We're delighted to have you, the principal there said, shaking his hand. Once his exams were over, Collins had cut way back on his caffeine intake. Even so, he hardly slept the night before his first day on the new job. Am I really good enough? He asked his wife as he picked at breakfast that morning. You bet you are, she said. Now go get him. For all her encouragement, he needed a deep breath to still the fear inside him as he walked up to the enameled door with the tarnished brass seven on it. He opened the door. He went inside. Good morning, class, he said, forcing his voice to steadiness. Good morning, teacher, the children chorused. Teacher, he felt ready to burst with pride. After so long, after so much hard work, at last he'd reached the pinnacle of his profession. There you go. And fantastic narration, Amy. And I just want to mention as well, Amy was interviewing or did a, her little kind of rendition of the looking back at genre history, talking about science fiction conventions on SofaCon. And we also did, or Amy did, a like one-to-one on the special guest, which was Lewis McMaster-Bujold. Now, I mentioned last week as well, Amy's went and put up a little write-up in the forums if you want to kind of dip into Lewis's work there, because it is like a minefield and... With Amy's guidance, you kind of, you know, and I've been reading a couple of the, the works there now by Lois, and I'm just loving it, to be quite honest. It's just something you just get absorbed in and just forget yourself in, and that's kind of what I want, especially when I'm sitting by a pool. So have a look over there for Amy's recommendations for Lois's work as well. And maybe one day you might be able to hear the the actual one-to-one on Amy or see it on video, you know what I mean? I did record them. But, you know, it's these things was for SofaCon. So we'll see how it goes. But anyway, I'll have got the, the quiz coming at the end of the show as well. So you've got to look out for that. So next up is the short fiction, Clash of Arms. 
came out in 1988, New Destinies. And it is narrated by the one, the only Nick Cam, who Nick's come onto this show, you know, and just delivered what time after time, just some perfect narrations. Like you say, even Pete Watts, guest of honour on Sovacon, mentioned numerous times, you know, just how good Nick was at narrating, you know what I mean? So, Nick, what can I say? So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Clash of Arms by Harry Turtledove. The tournament held every other year at the castle at Thunder Tentronka in Westphalia always produced splendid jousting, luring, as it did, great knights from all over Europe. Indeed, one turn a year, the lure proved too much even for Magister Stephen de Windsor, who left his comfortable home outside London to travel to the wilds of Germany. You must understand at once that Magister Stephen did not arrive at the castle of Thunder Tentronka to break a lance himself. Far from it. He was fat and well past fifty. While that was also true of several of the knights there, no more need be said that Magister Stephen habitually rode a mule. His sharpest weapon was his tongue, and at the castle of Thunder Tentronka, or, to be more accurate, in a tavern just outside the castle he was having trouble with that. The Westphalians used a dialect even more barbarous than his own English and his French, I fear, was more of the variety learned at stratford atte than around Paris. On the other hand, he spoke very loudly. Me? I don't care a fig for cart-horses and arrogant swaggers in plate, he declared to anyone who would listen. To emphasise the point, he gestured with a mug of beer. Some slopped over the edge and splashed the table. He did not miss it. It was thin, bitter stuff next to the smooth English ale he liked. "'You don't like jousts? Why did you come?' asked an Italian merchant, whose French was hardly better than Magister Stevens. The Italian was chiefly interested in getting the best price for a load of pepper, cinnamon, and spikenard, but he had an amateur's passion for deeds of doubt. Magister Stephen fixed him with a cold grey eye. "'The arms, man, the arms!' "'Well, of course the arms. "'Arma verum cano,' the merchant said, "'proving that he owned some smattering of a classical education. "'He made cut-and-thrust motions. "'Dear God, if you are truly all-wise, "'why did you make so many dullards?' "'Magister Stephen murmured, but in English.' Returning to French, he explained, "'Not weaponry. What I mean is coats of arms, heraldry, blazonry. Do you understand me?' The Italian smote his forehead with the heel of his hand. "'Aye, the stupidity of me. Truly, I am seventeen different kinds of hindquarters of a she-donkey. Heraldry, your honourment. I myself am Armigeros man.' "'You, sir?' Magister Stephen eyed his chance-met comrade with fresh interest. He certainly did not look as if he came from any knightly or noble line, being small, skinny, excitable, and dressed in mantle, tunic, and tights shabbier than Stephen's own. Still, it could be. The Italians were freer with grants of arms to burgesses than were the northern countries. "'Indeed, yes, sir,' the merchant replied, paying no attention to Magister Stephen's scrutiny. I am Niccolo Delobosco, of the woods, you would say. 
When I am at home, you see, I am to be found in the forest outside Firenze. It is a truly lovely town, Firenze. Do you know it? Unfortunately, no, Magister Stephen said. He was thinking that it was not unfortunate at all. He had been to Milan once to watch a tourney and came away with a low opinion of Italian manners and cookery. That, however, was neither here nor there. And your arm, sir, if I may ask. But of course. A proud shield, you will agree. A jewel's effes, or uh, between three frogs proper. Magister Stephen whipped out quill and ink and a small sketchbook. Rather than carrying a variety of colours around for rough sketches, he used hatchings to show the tinctures. Vertical stripes for the red ground of the shield, with dots for the broad gold horizontal bands crossing the centre of the escutcheon. His frogs were lumpy-looking creatures. He glanced up at Delabosco, who was watching him in fascination. Why three frogs proper? he asked. Why not simply vert? They are to be shown as spotted. Ah, Magister Stephen made the necessary correction. Most interesting, Master Della Bosco. In England, I know of but one family whose arms bear the frog, or rather the toad, that of Botreau, whose arms are argent, three toads erect, sable. The Italian smiled. From Batracien, no doubt. A pleasant pun, yes? Hmm. Magister Stephen owned a remorselessly literal mind. Why, so it is. <laughs> His chuckle was a little forced. The approaching jingle of harness and clop of heavy hooves in the street told of another party of knights on its way to the castle of Thunder-Tentronca. Anxious to see their arms, Magister Stephen tossed a coin down on the tabletop and waited impatiently for his change. He pocketed the sixth of a copper and hurried out of the tavern. To his annoyance, he was familiar with all but one of the newcomer's shields. He was just finishing his sketch of that one when Della Bosco appeared at his elbow and nudged him. "'There's something you won't find often,' the Italian said, nodding towards one of the stalls across the road. "'A trader who can't give his stock away.' "'Oh, well, yes, him.' Magister Stephen had noticed the bushy-bearded merchant in the caftan the day before. He was a Greek from Thessalonica, come to the castle of Thunder Tentronca with a cartload of fermented fish sauce. To northern noses, though, the stuff smelled long dead. Now the Greek was reduced to smearing it on the heels of bread and offering them as free samples to people on the street, most of whom took one good whiff and fled. Timeo danois et donais seferentis, Della Bosco laughed, watching yet another passerby beat a hasty retreat from the stall. You know Virgil well, Master Stephen said. Yes, very well, Della Bosco agreed, and Magister Stephen sniffed at the ready vanity of an Italian. Another party of knights came clattering up the road towards the castle. It seems our day for surprises. Della Bosco said, pointing at one horseman's arms. Or have you seen Pantheons before? Magister Stephen did not answer. He was drawing furiously. He knew of the Pantheon from his study of heraldic law, 
but had not seen the mythical beast actually depicted on a shield. It had the head of a doe, a body that might have come from the same creature, a fox's tail and cloven hooves. It was shown in its proper colours, the hooves sable, body ghouls powdered with golden stars. "'Quite unusual,' Magister Stephen said at last, tucking his sketchbook back inside his tunic. Then he turned to Delabosco, who had been waiting for him to finish. "'Sir, you astonish me. Not one in a thousand would have recognized a pantheon at sight.' The merchant drew himself up stiffly. Even so, the crown of his head was below the level of Magister Stephen's chin. "'I am not one in a thousand. I am myself. And being Amigeros is not proper for me to know heraldry.' "'Oh, certainly. Only—' Delabosco might have been reading his thoughts, for he divined the exact reason for the hesitation. "'You think I am stupid because I am not noble-born, eh? Why do I not trash you for this?' He was hopping up and down in fury, his cheeks crimson beneath their Mediterranean swarthiness. Magister Stephen cocked a massive fist. I promise you, you would regret the attempt. Do I care a fig for your promises, you landed ton? Have a care with your saucy tongue, knave, or I will be the one to thrash you. Not only fat, but a fool. In my little finger I know more of heraldry than is in all your empty head. Magister Stephen's rage ripped free. "'Damn me to hell if you do, sir!' he roared loudly enough to make heads turn half a block away. "'A big, talking pile of sweat! Go home to Mamma! I do not waste my time on you!' Delabosco gave a theatrical Italian gesture of contempt, spun on his heel and began to stalk away. Magister Stephen seized him by the shoulder and hauled him back. White around the lips, the Englishman grated, "'Dare to prove your boast, little man, or I will kill you on the spot. Contest with me, and we shall see which of us can put a question the other cannot answer.' "'What stake will you put up for this uh, contest of yours?' Delabosco said, wriggling free of the other's grip." Magister Stephen laughed harshly. "'Ask what you will if you win. You shall not. As for me, all I intend is flinging you into a dung-heap to serve you as you deserve for insolence to your betters.' "'Wind, a wind, a wind!' Delabosco jeered. "'As challenged, I shall ask first. It is agreed?' "'Ask away.' The last question counts for all, not the first. Very well, then. Tell me, if you will, the difference between a mermaid and a melusine. You have a fondness for monsters, it seems, Magister Stephen remarked. No doubt it suits your character. To your answer— Three German heralds have a fondness for melusines and draw them with two tails to the mermaid's one. Delabosco shrugged and spread his hands. Magister Stephen said, My turn now. 
Why is the bar sinister termed a mark of bastardy? Because all English speak French as poorly as you, his opponent retorted. Barre is French for bend, and the bend sinister does show illegitimacy. Any child knows that bards like the fess run straight across the shield, and so cannot be called dexter or sinister. Magister Stephen did his best to hide his chagrin. They threw questions there at each other in the street and gave back answers as swiftly. Magister Stephen's wrath soon faded, to be replaced by the spirit of competition. All his wit focused on finding challenges for Delabosco and on meeting the Italians. Some of those left him sweating. Wherever he had learned his heraldry, Delabosco was a master. Magister Stephen looked up amazed to realise it was twilight. A pause for a roast capon and a bottle of wine, he suggested. Then to my chamber and we'll have this out to the end. Still the belly first, is it? Delabosco said, but he followed the Englishman back into the inn from which they had come several hours before. Refreshed, Magister Stephen climbed the stairs to his cubicle over the taproom. He carried a burning taper in one hand and a fresh bottle in the other. After lighting a lamp, he stretched out his straw palliasse and waved Delabosco to the rickety footstool that was the little rented room's only other furniture. My turn, is it not? Magister Stephen asked. At the Italian's nod, he said, Give me the one British coat of arms that has no charge upon the shield. A plague on you and all the British with you, Delabosco said. He screwed up his mobile face in thought and sat a long time silent. Just as grinning Magister Stephen was about to rise, he said, "'I have it, I think. Did not John of Brittany, the Earl of Richmond, that is, but simple ermine?' "'Damnation!' Magister Stephen exploded, and Delabosco slumped in relief. Then he came back with a sticker of his own. "'What a beast is it that has... Both three bodies and three ears. Magister Stephen winced. He frantically began reviewing the monsters of blazonry. The lion tricorporate had but one head with the usual number of ears. The chimera had... No, it had three heads and only one body. The hydra was drawn in various ways with seven heads, or all three, but again, a single body. Having trouble? Adela Bosco asked. In the lamplight, his eyes were enormous. They seemed almost a deep crimson rather than black, something that Magister Stephen had not noticed, and that only added to his unease. The hot, eager gaze made him want to run like a rabbit. Like a rabbit? He let out a gentle chortle of joy. The Coney trijunct on the arms of Harrywell, he exclaimed. The bodies are disposed in the dexter and sinister chief points and in base, each joined to the others by a single ear around the vest point. Delabosco sighed and relaxed once more. Still shuddering at his narrow escape, 
Magister Stephen cudgelled his brain for the fitting revenge. Suddenly he smiled. Tell me the formal name of the steps to be depicted under the cross Calvary. But Della Bosco answered at once. Grices. He came back with a complicated point of blazonry. Magister Stephen made him repeat it, then waded through. Two and three or across ghouls, he finished, panting a bit. Had you blazoned the first and fourth, a body of six instead of a sure three bars, or I would have had you, Delabosco said. Yes, I know. Yet even though Magister Stephen had given the correct response, the feel of the contest changed. He was rattled and asked the first thing that popped into his head. Delabosco's answered easily. Then he asked a question so convoluted as to make the one before elementary by comparison. Magister Stephen barely survived it and took a long pull at the wine jar when he had finished. Again his opponent brushed aside his answering sally. Again he came back with a question of hideous difficulty. The cycle repeated several times. At every query, Magister Stephen's answers came more slowly and with less certainty. Della Bosco never faltered. The lamp in the little room was running low on oil. Its dying flickers made Della Bosco seem somehow bigger, as if he were gathering strength from Magister Stephen's distress. Every time he hurled a question, now he leaned forward, hands on his knees, waiting for the Englishman's stumbling replies like a hound that had scented blood. He handled Magister Stephen's next question on the difference between the English and continental systems for showing cadency with such a dazzling display of erudition that the Englishman, desperate as he was, wanted to jot down notes. But there was no time for that. Stretching lazily, Delabosco said, I grow weary of the game, I fear. So, then, a last one for you. Tell me, what arms the devil bears? What? Only the devil knows that, Magister Stephen blurted. At that moment, the lamp went out. Yet the chamber was not dark for Niccolò della Bosco's eyes still glowed red, like burning coals. When he spoke again, his voice was deeper, richer, and altogether without Italian accent. I see that you do not know in any case, which is a great pity for you. Nor is it wise to bet with strangers. But then... I told you you were a fool. Delabosco chuckled. And now to settle up the wager. What was it that you said? Damn me to hell if you do, sir. Well, that can be arranged. He strode forward and laid hold of Magister Stephen. His grip had claws. Della Bosco had not mentioned the mountain by the dark wood outside Firenze, or the gateway there, 
or the writing above it. Lasciate ogni sperenza vuac entrate, Magister Stephen read as he was dragged through. Even in such straits he was observant and cried, No wonder you said you knew Virgil well. Indeed. After all, he lives with me. Then the lesser demons took control of their new charge from their master. To show their service, they bore his arms, ghouls, a fess, or between three frogs proper. Magister Stephen found that very funny. But not for long. There you go, Nick. How are you walking? I say, Nick, big hug, lad. How are you? Thank you so much. It's like I say, it's been great to have Nick on board. You know, you just want to kind of do the best you can. And like I say, all these narrators we've had on, do you know what I mean? I think we've kind of achieved that. So, but Nick's got something special there. And I keep on saying he's a Yorkshire lad, but he gets such upset with that. Hey, man. <laughs> Southerner. So next up is another story by Harry Turtledove, Not All Wolves, which came out in 1988. It first came out in Werewolves, 1988, edited by Martin H. Greenberg. It's been in Departures, New Magics, an anthology of today's fantasy with 2004. It is narrated by Iba Among Us, and Iba has just got a lovely voice here as well. And I didn't realise as well, Iba is a film director, and things could happen with a writer from this, who we've played on these shows as well. You never know. I hope that comes off. So, the Starship Sova is a very proud present. Not All Wolves by Harry Turtledove. Archbishopric of Cologne, 1176. A full moon rose in the clear, dark sky. Dieter ran through the streets of Cologne. Mud splashed under the pads of his feet. It flew up to stick in lumps in the matted fur of his tail. He turned sharply and dashed down a narrow, stinking alley. Much too close behind him, someone cried, There he goes, that way! A score of men or more were hunting him. Their high, excited shouts reminded him of the baying of wolves. Had he been in his own familiar body, he might have laughed or cried, or both at once. In the wolf shape he wore, he could only whimper. He tried to run faster. Torches appeared in the mouth of the alley, casting a flickering light down its length. Dieter's eyes only saw that as a brighter grayness. A wisp of breeze brought him the smell of torch smoke and of his pursuers. He could smell their fear and their resolve. The men knew nothing of the wondrous things his nose told him, any more than a deaf man could follow a mincinger's song. But their eyes now were keener than his. They were many, and they could plan. More shouts rang out. There he is! Which way did he turn? To the left! No, to the right, you idiot! Yes, to the right, I saw him too. Klaus, Joachim, and Hans, up the street to the tailors, and quickly! Don't let the cursed beast get through that way. And one more cry, over and over again. Kill the werewolf! It's not my fault, Dieter wanted to explain. I do no harm. But when he opened his wolf's jaws, only a wolf's growl came out. And those wolf's jaws, he could not deny, 
held a full set of wolf's teeth. He could feel them, jagged against his tongue, which hung from the side of his mouth as he panted in the air he needed to run and run and run. Inside the body of a wolf, though, he kept the wits he'd had as a boy. If the street of the tailors was still unblocked, he might yet break through, away from the pack. Yes, that was the proper word, he thought. The pack at his heels. Too late. Too late. He heard Klaus, Joachim, and Hans beat him to the corner. They all carried torches. Two had clubs and the other a woodcutter's axe. They looked this way and that. Good, Dieter thought. They did not know he was close by. They were only three, after all, not twenty. He sprang at them. Two screamed like lost souls and fled. The third had more courage in him. His club thudded against Dieter's ribs. Pain flared, then died. Dieter's flesh mended with unnatural speed. Had the fellow thought to swing the torch, though, he might have done true harm. Dieter gave him no chance to think of that. He snarled horribly and ran by. He was ahead of his pursuers again, but he was not free of them, as he had hoped. The brave man pounded after him, yelling. His cries and the shrieks the other two were letting out were sure to draw the rest of the mob. All Dieter wanted was a place to be left alone to wait out the night. Come morning, he knew he would be himself again. Thirteen, an orphan, making his living as best he could, doing odd jobs for weavers and tanners, enamelers and smiths. Was it four months ago the change first came on him? Other changes had started not long before then. His voice had begun to crack and to deepen. Fine, fuzzy down appeared on his cheeks. The second and third-hand tunics and breeches he wore seemed suddenly to bind and to leave him bare at wrists and ankles. Every lad he knew went through those changes, but not every lad he knew turned into a wolf when the moon was full. The first time it happened, by luck, Dieter had been alone. Even after he struggled out of the clothes that no longer fit his new shape, he did not realize fully what he was. It was not until he changed back at sunrise and saw the wolf's prints in the dirt of the empty stable where he'd spent the night that he began to understand. And with understanding came fear. The next night of the full moon and the one after that, he had sought out deserted places to wait through the change. When he was a wolf, he had no urge to tear the throat out of every man and beast he saw. Past stealing a flitch of bacon, he had gone hungry on the nights the change struck him. He also had no illusions about the townsfolk believing that. He had been on his way to hide this time, too, but that fat fool of a swordsman had kept him working late, and the moon rose while he was still on the street. A woman screamed. He could not really blame her. Had he seen someone turn from a boy to a wolf before his eyes, he thought he would have screamed himself. The hunt had been on ever since. Kill the werewolf. He was growing heartily tired of that cry but the one that came after it made the hair along his spine stand up. I burned it in the old market square in front of St. Martin's Church, as we did the wizard last year. The crowd, people said, had jammed the square. Dieter had not gone himself. He had no stomach for such spectacles. He had not escaped it altogether, though. The stench of burned flesh lingered for days in front of the church. Even then, he had taken more notice of smells than most folk. No wonder, he thought. He imagined himself, in a wolf shape or boys, it wouldn't matter, tied to a stake with little yellow flames licking through the faggots towards his tender flesh. 
He threw back his head and howled a long cry of fear and desolation. The shouts behind him redoubled. Dogs yelped frantically. Lights appeared in windows as people fetched lamps or candles from beside their beds to see what was going on. Some of them, Dieter knew, would join the chase. He should have kept quiet, but the mere idea of burning had ripped the whale from him. By God, they would not burn him. By God. Hope ran through him. It was dizzying, so much so that he almost stumbled into a pile of garbage at the end of the street. Surely a priest could lift the curse from him. He seldom went to church. He had to worry about keeping his belly. If not full, then at least with something in it. On Sunday, no less than any other day. But he knew where every church in the town was. They were likely places for work. And handouts. Even had he been next door to St. Martin's, he would not have gone there. Not after the shouts of burning him in front of it. But St. Martin's lay close to the Rhine, far away from the ancient maze of streets through which he was running. The central part of Cologne, he had heard, went back to legendary days of Rome. Of Rome, he knew nothing save the name. He did know he was near the church of St. Sicilian. If none of the men who hunted him was waiting down this street, none was. He turned right, then left. There stood St. Sicilian's church, its doors open to the needy. No one, Dieter thought, had ever been more needy than he. He climbed awkwardly up the stairs. Stairs were made for creatures with two legs, not four, and into the church. It looked different from the way he remembered, and not just because he was seeing it only in shades of gray. Now his eyes were also lowered to the ground. The pews seemed a forest around him. In boy's shape, too, he hardly noticed the incense in the air. It was just part of how churches smelled. As a wolf, though, the bitterness of myrrh and frankincense's sharp, spicy scent made his nose twitch and tingle. He gasped and sneezed once, twice, three times. A priest was walking up the aisle to the altar. He carried a long staff with a crucifix on the end. At the sneezes, he whirled around in surprise. Good health to, he began, then stopped in horror when he saw who, or rather, what had sneezed. Dieter trotted towards him. He opened his mouth to ask the priest's blessing. That showed him the one flaw in his plan. As a wolf, he could not tell the man what he needed. The priest saw only a great hairy beast rushing at him with gaping jaws. Liebergott, he gasped. With no other weapon he could reach, he swung his staff at the wolf. The crucifix was silver. The blow hurt Dieter as much as if he had been human. Howling in pain and dismay, he whirled about and fled from the church, tail between his legs. A wolf! A wolf! The priest shouted behind him. Some of the hunters were drawing near St. Sicilian's. They yelled and pointed when they saw Dieter streak out. They ran after him. His savage growl, though, made them think twice about coming close. Having been hurt already, he now acted and sounded fiercer than before. But the men did cut him off from the New Market Square. He growled deep and low in his throat. So many streets led off that square. He would have had his choice of escape routes. Instead, his pursuers were forcing him away, and the priest's hue and cry would only bring more people out after him. Already he could hear new voices, smell new scents among those who chased him. He was halfway down a street before it jogged to show him it had only the exit down which he had come. A tall, barred gate of stout timbers blocked the other end. He yelped and whimpered. He was trapped here. Too late to double back now. His pursuers had plugged the way out. They knew it, too. We have him, one shouted. He can't get into the Jews' quarter at night. Come on. 
Dieter snarled this time at himself. He should have remembered the Jews were closed off from the rest of the city between sunrise and sunset. The men were coming closer, faster. He could not go back through them. He stood there panting. Part of him, the exhausted part, wanted to lay down and give up. Then he thought of the flames again. No, he could not let the hunters take him. He ran for the gate and flung himself upwards. He had imagined himself easily clearing the timbers, landing lightly on the far side. His head and forelegs cleared, sure enough, but his belly slammed against the gate hard enough to drive half the wind from him. He hung there a moment, stunned. His hind feet scrabbled for purchase. The wood was rough, his claws bit. Leaving skin and hair behind, he dragged himself over, fell like a stone to the ground. His undignified scramble had let him be seen. There he went, a man yelled from the other side of the gate. The fellow pounded on it with his fist. Here, you damned Jews, open up. Dieter raced away. Now he had time to find a hiding place, without any of his pursuers liable to spot him diving for cover. He would not keep that chance long. Several men were battering at the gate, one by the sound of it with an axe. Open up, they shouted at the top of their lungs. You damn stupid Jews, there's a werewolf loose among you. That would make the gates open up if anything did, Dieter thought. He knew he never hurried to do anything for people who cursed him and called him names. He suspected the Jews were no different from him in that, no matter that they had their own strange faith. But he would run if someone screamed, Fire, you fools! The Jews might swallow insults for the sake of hunting him down. He rounded a corner and almost ran into a man crossing the street. They both stopped, staring at each other. The old Jew did not run shrieking, as so many had. Behind Dieter, clamor grew. Either someone would come open the gate, or soon the men who hunted him would soon break it down. The frozen tableau that gripped Dieter and the man could not last, not with shouts of werewolf flying thick and fast. Dieter was about to run when the old Jew spoke. Come with me, and quickly. He opened a door, gestured urgently. Dieter hesitated. All the wild, wolfly instincts in him rebelled at trusting any man. The boy he still was had trouble believing anyone would want to help him in his present state. But the old man had not known he was coming. No trap could be waiting for him inside the house. And even if one somehow was, what could a frail greybeard do against any wolf, let alone a werebeast? The sound of the gate creaking open decided him. His hunters were in the Jewish quarter, and the Jews likely would soon be after him too. Everyone was against him, save this one old man. He grabbed at that like a drowning man grabbing for a log. He darted inside. The old man shut the door behind him. Get under the table, there, he said. When Dieter had, he draped a cloth over it that hung down to the floor on all sides. Then he lit a couple of candles at the little brazier and set them on the table. Dieter's world, the little square of it he could see, went from black to gray. The old man rustled about for another couple of minutes, then sat down, his knees pushed at the tablecloth. Now we wait, he said. Dieter whined softly to show he had heard. They did not wait long. A knock came at the door. Avram, are you there? A man asked. Where else would I be with the candles lit? The old Jew said. It's late, David. Why do you come around asking foolish questions? Avram, will you please open up? The other man, David, asked. Some of the good folk from outside the gate are with me. They are searching for, they say, uh, a wolf. The stool creaked as Avram rose. 
Dieter heard him open the door. A wolf? In Kalan? So they say, David told him. They seemed most urgent. We thought it would be wiser to let them come in, no matter the hour. Is that the commotion I heard? Avram sounded grumpy and disapproving. It was loud enough to disturb my studies. Too bad, old Jew. Dieter shivered at the sound of the new voice. It belonged to the man who had dared swing a club at him. When a werewolf is loose in the city, we don't care what we disturb to find it. Others shouted agreement. Well, I have seen no wolves, where or otherwise, gentlemen. I've been at my book since sundown. May I go back to them? Since sundown, you say? Why are your candles so long? Dieter had to clamp his jaws shut to keep from whimpering in terror. Not only was the hunter a brave man, he was also no one's fool. Avram just shrugged. Dieter heard his robe rustle. Because the last pair gutted out not long ago, and I lit these from them. Why else? You've seen or heard nothing out of the ordinary, you say. None till you came, Avram replied sharply. You watch your mouth, Jew, or you'll watch the few teeth you have left go flying into the mud. But after that, the man turned back to his comrades. If this old bugger's been here all night, the cursed beast can't have sneaked in. On to the next house. Dieter heard them tramping away. Avram shut the door and walked back over to the table. He did not lift the cloth. Very softly, he asked, I'll stay down here reading until these candles fail. Don't come out till then. I'll leave a dish of water for you. You'd be wiser to stay the night here, I think. In the morning, in your proper shape, you'll have an easier time getting back to your own affairs. Dieter wished he could answer in words. He thumped his tail against the floor. Avram grunted. The old Jew sat down. He began turning pages and, every so often, muttering to himself. When one candle went out, he got up. As he had promised, he poured water from a jug and set it by the table. He blew out the other candle. Sleep well, wolf, he said. He went up the stairs in the dark. Even though no one could see him now, Dieter did not come out for a long time. When at last he did, he bent his head over the bowl and lapped it dry, then slurped drops of water from his chin and whiskers with his tongue. Fleeing was thirsty work. He went back under the table to sleep. If it grew light before he changed back to himself, he wanted the concealment the cloth would bring. He woke to find one of his feet poking a table leg. One of his feet. It was hairless, clawless, with five toes all in a row. It was dirty, but pink under the dirt. He could see it was pink. I'm Dieter, he whispered. His mouth formed words. He was a boy again. He crawled out from under the table, stood up. He realized he was naked, and he saw he had a small scar on his belly that had not been there before. A souvenir, he supposed, of his scramble over the gate. He made a cloak of the tablecloth. He had just wrapped it around himself when old Avram came downstairs. So that's what you look like, eh? The old Jew said. He handed Dieter a bundle of clothes. Here, put these on. You're apt to look at... 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Out of place, wearing cable in and in the street. The clothes were not new, but they were better than what Dieter was used to wearing. They fit well enough. As he dressed, Avram cut him cheese and bread for breakfast. He had not known how hungry he was until he saw he had finished them before Avram was even done with his smaller portion. What more? Avram asked. No, thank you, Dieter paused. Thank you, he said again, in a different tone of voice. The old Jew gave a gruff nod. It uh, should be safe now to go back to your part of the city, boy. Yes. Dieter started for the door, then stopped. He turned back to Avram. May I ask you something? Ask, Avram said, around a mouthful of bread and cheese. Why did you save me? Dieter blurted. I mean, everyone else who saw me wanted to kill me on sight. What made you so different from the rest of them? Avram sat silent so long in his stool that Dieter wondered if he had somehow offended him. At last, the old Jew said slowly, One thing you should remember always, you are not the only one ever hunted down Cologne's streets. Dieter thought about that. He never really had before. Jews falling victim to mobs were just part of life in the city to him, like chamber pots being hurled into the street from second-floor windows, or famine one year in four. The Jews, though, he realized, might not see it like that. Indeed, Avram was going on, as much for himself as Dieter. No, lad, and not all wolves run on four legs, either. You ask me, the ones with two are worse. Keep clear of them, and you'll do all right. He opened the door. Yesterday, Dieter thought, as he stepped into the cool, damp air of early morning, he would have had no idea what the old Jew was talking about. Now, he knew. With a last nod at Avram, he started down the street. He would have to find some work to do if he expected to eat lunch. There you go. How about that? 
I think now what we'll do is we'll have a, a break from Harry in the, in the nicest possible way. And we've only got one more story to, to play by Harry. But I think we'll dip in now to the sofa quiz, which was Geek Sky the Galaxy up against the blog SF Signal. You know what I mean? Titans in their own right. Knowledge and, you know, of just all things science fiction. And just it, what a great concept this was, to be quite honest. Just to kind of meet with your friends and have a laugh over the internet in video and have a quiz on science fiction. Do you know what I mean? Very basic, but lots of fun. So this is the actual quiz. And if you don't know the winners or anything like that, well... So this is the very first quiz of SofaCon 2013. Right there we go. I got a microphone. Right there we go. (laughs) The quiz of the 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 year. (laughs) Right. So are we all set Hi, then? everybody. Right. So can we just have <laughs> a little that? a little oh. wave from SF Signal so everyone knows who FF Signal are? John Donardo and JP Franz there. One of the, probably the best blog out there for science fiction. Now, there's two other young chaps <laughs> on the opposite team there. Well, there's one that's kind of knocking on, Mr. John Joseph Adams. Can we have a little wave from John Joseph Adams? And there's a young, there's a young fella who looks like he's a rabbit caught in headlights. Mr. David Kirtley, sir. Give us a wave, David. Right. We know the kind of... So we know the idea. It's SF Signal comes up against Geek Sky of the Galaxy. Can we have a set of new logos? Can we see them new logos, gentlemen? There we uh, go. I, there have we... The, I still have the old logo, <laughs> Was he too mean to get you one, David? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I have a new card. I have a new card I designed, but uh, I can't. I keep fiddling with it, so I still haven't ordered the new so, one. Yet. Well, it's the first one then to answer a question. So, John and JP, have you still got your little laser guns? Right. Can we just? <laughs> so, Amy. <laughs> Do you realise there's nearly a full house? You know, like nearly a hundred people watching this bloody thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's grown men and women there doing this. How I can't even see now. It's that, that bloody dark. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to put a light on. One second. So I've got 45 questions that they'll run out when it gets to kind of near. If we run a little bit late, we'll run over. But if not, we'll just carry on. We just show your logos or raise your guns. Amy, you tell us who's doing it in case I miss it. Who's first to answer the question? Right. The first question of Silvercon Trivia Quiz. What Harry Harrison novel was adapted into the film Soul and Green? David, David. I, think it's, is I saw first. Right, go on, David. Okay, that, that would be make room, make room. Oh, there we go. Yeah. That was on SF Signal just today. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he got I it from. It was, I, I thought Solomon Green was made of people. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it's made of make room, make room. So Amy's keeping the scores as well. Amy, you are keeping the scores, aren't you? I am. Right, I right. am. I have a, a very high tech uh, That's system. Good. That's here, good. So. Right, let's um, one more drink. Cheers, everyone. None of you have got a drink. Amy, I hope you have a drink. <laughs> right, are we ready then? Here. Yes, get ready then. What is the real name of James Triptree Jr., for whom the Triptree Award is named? 
Amy, who was that? David again. Fast David. reflexes. David. Yeah. Uh, Alice I Sheldon. I saw David first again. Yeah. Yes, sir. Right. That's Alice Sheldon. Well that done, is sir. Correct. SF signal. What the hell is happening? What's going wrong? It's all going <laughs> wrong straight away. <laughs> right. Question three. Who said science fiction is the very literature of change? In fact, it is the only such literature we have. I'm only showing you the bloody mm. questions there, man. Come on, who said that? Yeah. Are you mm. stumped there, aren't you? The lot of yous. Who can type into Google fast? <laughs> <laughs> who said science fiction is the very literature of change? In fact, it is the only such literature we have. There's like no penalty for guessing, that. right? No, guess, guess away. Go on then. Who, me? Yes, John, go on. Uh, I'll guess Damon Knight, just because it sounds like the sort of thing he would say. Unfortunately, Close. no. John, ah. John De Niro? I'll, I'll guess uh, Arthur C. Clarke. No. Going to end this one, it anyone? It was a Futurian, though. It was the Futurian, so... Uh, was, uh, <laughs> D- Damon was close. David? Um, Asimov. No. <laughs> it was Frederick Paul. There we go. Oh, that was my idea. Ah. Oh, right, right. Damn. right. <laughs> A lot of years there. No, no bloody history among you. Right. What novel was the first winner of the SF Triple Crown, the Hugo Nebula and the Philip K. Dick Award? Ah. Oh, John Joseph Adams. Neuromancer? Uh, That's the award, big lad. Well done. Wow. Oh. That's good. Right. Man. Man, Dropping some knowledge on y'all. <laughs> Listen, I've lost me money. I'm just doing a... <laughs> I'm just doing a quick personal call to John Joseph Adams. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bloody hell. SF signal. What's happening to you? Right. We were drinking before this. I don't know. We got nothing. Right. Which novel by Mary Shelley describes the 21st century that includes airships and worldwide plague? Already, David. Go on. Uh, wait. Oh, John, do you know this, John? Do you know this one? Um, was it The Last Man? That's the one, John. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that's not Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Right. I, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was The Last Man or The Last Man. Yeah, yeah, I didn't actually hear the beginning of the question, so that's why it didn't buzz in. But Well done. Excellent. Next question. Who was the first science fiction author to receive the MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Grant? David, again, sir. Uh, Octavia Butler. Oh, well done. Well done. Listen, <laughs> I just want to have a little quiet word with SF Signal. Do you just want to just go go now? <laughs> well, we, we might just be faster. You know, we might just have faster reflexes. Yeah. Is, that what, is that what it is? Right. right. John, GP, come on, this one. I'm, I'm relying on you. Come on. What was the first novel to win both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards? Oh. David again? Andrew's game? Nope. <sighs> uh, I don't know. I've got I've got no clue. Win both Hugo I and Nebula know. Awards. John, do you want to kind of uh, War's history is uh no. Dune? That's the one, Mr. Adams. Uh, well done, well done. Do I still do we still get a point for that? Oh give, Amy, give them half a point. <laughs> yes, because that's what they I thought, need. I thought, <laughs> no, I thought there was no penalty for guessing. 
Actually, well, yeah, but we're a team, so I, I wasn't sure if, if, if you got it wrong. Oh. If I could still answer. Why don't oh, you actually? Yeah. Why doesn't Geek's Guy just sell a few wins over to SF Signal? <laughs> <laughs> Donate a few points. Right. He has a, he has Deliver a, the harshness there, Tony. He has, a, he has a tough one for you then. I put five pounds no, on the SF Signal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which Cherokee author has won the Sidewise Awards for Alternative History multiple times? Geeks Guy, John Joseph Adams. Uh, William Sanders. Well done, sir. Yes. Wow. Very nice. Very good. Have we got the Amy? Can we just have the scores uh, uh, as we go? <laughs> Reminders. <laughs> I have I have six and a half to zero, Tony. So we need some representing here. Right, it's it's close, right? <laughs> right, we're going to own this next one. Right, here we go. And by by own, I mean buy it from you. We'll give you money if you let us get this answer. <laughs> no, actually, John and JP, when when this is finished, and maybe whatever the outcome, you better write a big post about this on your site. <laughs> <laughs> what? We're not going to admit it happened. This is all imaginary. Right then, the next question is: Which three authors and you? University buddies are considered the fathers of steampunk. Oh, I think it's just that's just a reaction now, John. Uh, James Blaylock and Tim Powers. Well, I've got you. Well, yes, one more. That's, that's oh, two uh, for three. Two out of James Blaylock, Tim Powers, and um, JP. <laughs> I know. I know Powers. That was it. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Mm. Can I get a? Can I get 33 percent of a point? <laughs> Actually, no. We're, we're not going to give. Oh, uh, KW Jeter. There we go. Uh-huh. There we go. That was uh-huh. a quick Google go. search. All right. Let me just check his phone All and right. check the Google search there. Right. No Google search. <laughs> I can't type that fast. Just, I, I can vouch for that. Right then. Hey, I'm right here. <laughs> yeah, thank See, you. JP was probably Googling it and he texted it to him or something. Right. I end it. They've got, a whole, they've got a whole system. They're, they're trying to beat the system. Next question. Oh, we need then. to see the back of your heads to see who's actually plugged in. Exactly. Right yeah. into the net. So just check. Have the cyberpunk check there. Okay. Which Hugo Award-winning episode of Doctor Who was first written by Neil Gaiman? John Joseph Adams. Uh, the, the Doctor's Wife. Well done. Okay. Yes. Amy, a point in ah, SFC. I got the Doctor Who question right. <laughs> <laughs> right. What? Have pi- you even seen that episode? I have not. Well, there you go. Oh, oh, <laughs> I, I think you should lose title. half a point. You should lose half a point just for that, just on principle. He should actually get double points because he didn't even see the thing. He still knows it. (laughs) SF Signal, where are you? It's more impressive. (laughs) (laughs) But such a waste of a great episode. Right, question 11. What pioneering editor combined scientific and fiction to coin the term scientifiction? David Curley. Hugo back. Well done, sir. Hear me? Get them scores rattled down. I've got it. Which musician actor is being inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame this year? Geek's uh, Guide. Uh, John. David Bowie. Yeah, exactly right. 
I missed the David Bowie question. <laughs> Unbelievable. You were just a fraction of the section behind, though. I mean, you were there. I, I saw you were there. You were uh, stepping closer. forward. Just to, that's right. Closer. Right then. That's right. Question 13. Who played the character Bester as a tribute to SF author Arthur, Arthur Alfred Bester in Babylon 5? Damn it, what's that guy's name? Andre yeah, exactly. Hayden. Exactly. Uh, uh, Go on then, John. Uh, Walter Koenig. That's exactly Koenig. right. Exactly. Oh, I'm sorry to say it. Anybody got a drink or is it just me? <laughs> I have my... Uh... I could use one. <laughs> right then. Next question. You could. I just got just heard that you could do a stiff whiskey used to FF signal. Something needs needs some kind of repellent. Right then. What was the first short story to win both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards? Short story. Right. What was what was the first short story to win mm. both Hugo and Nebula awards? I'll take a stab. I got I got nothing, no idea. But uh, I'll say the Cold Equations. No. Oh, really, really good story though. Really I know. Shall I give him a point because it's a good story? Should we just give him? A point? <laughs> no, he should. He should actually lose a point because that because the Cold Equations came out before the Nebulas were even given out. Oh, that's what oh. I wondered. <laughs> that's what I wondered. Um, but I'm not above taking a pity. Uh, I I, uh, I will guess. Um, I have no mouth and I must scream. I don't know. Re- oh, so close. Same author. Ah, 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 ah. Wait. Oh, there he go. Look, away, he's going to come in. He's going to come in now. Go on, David. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wait a minute. Um, Five seconds. Oh, One. Boy, boy and his dog. No. no. Oh, John no. Donato. Same author. Go on, John. I guess that. Right. That's what I would have guessed. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Ah, ah Hall Nelson. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Which story was voted by the science fiction and fantasy writers of America as the best science fiction short story of all time? David Curley, Geek's Guide. Nightfall. Exactly right, Isaac Asimov. That's correct. Right. Which SF novel coined the term Tan Staffel? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah, John yeah. Donato. That was John. The Moon is a Harsh, the moon is a harsh Mistress by uh, Heinlein. Right. And, That's right. And on question 16, Amy, can we just have the, the scores? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> what, what scores have we got um, now? Then, yes, Amy? let's see. Must be close now. I've got um, 11 and a half. Eleven and a half uh, for for Geek's Guide and two for SF Signal, so two, it can still happen. It's still close. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Part gonna... one, two. What novel won the first Sidewise Award for Alternative History in Long Form Category? What novel won the first Sidewise Award for Alternative History? John Joseph Adams. Uh, I'll guess The Guns of the South by Harry Toto. No. Oh, that's a good guess, though. Uh, uh, I'm going to take a guess, too. The Man in the High Castle? Or is that too old? No. no. That's too old. old, But it's uh, it's a great one. Have we got any more? It was Pascal's Angel by Paul J. McCauley. Now, have I I pronounced that right, Amy? 
Pasquale's in, right? Yeah, McCall. That's right. Right. Which classic SF novel introduced the Morlocks and the Eloy? Oh, John DiNardo. Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Well done, sir. There you go. There we All go. All right. It's, it's, it's neck and neck. <laughs> <laughs> if one of those necks belongs to a giraffe, yeah. <laughs> Who popularized the term robot, which was actually invented by his brother? I don't think that was David oh. Curley, was it? Uh, Carl Chapek. Well done, sir. Well done. Right, here's a nice one. Nice and easy. Get ready. Can everyone see me? It's looking dead dark. My, <laughs> it's pretty night down here. What is written in You've large... you got a sort of vampire quality I know, about you. I know. I look pretty rough. Right. <laughs> what is written in large letters on the cover of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? David Curley. <laughs> Don't panic. Well done, sir. It's something we should be actually asked, telling SF Signal. That <laughs> <laughs> My wife would have thrown me out if I had gotten that wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was the first dramatic presentation to win both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards? Dramatic presentation. Hmm. Oh, it's quite all silent, Ian, with that question. I'm going to give you the answer now. It is Sleep At by Woody Allen. <laughs> Get ready for a quick one. What Austin Scott Card book has been made into a film that will debut later this year? Oh, JB Franz. Ender's Game. Well done, sir. What famous husband and wife writing team published under the pen name Lewis Pageant? I think that was David. Was that David Curley? Uh, David Knight and Kate Wilhelm? Oh. No. No. Nope. No. John DiNardo, sir. Oh, uh, C.L. Moore and Henry Cutner? Exactly right. That's correct. See, the young lad jumped in there. He jumped in too early, the young lad. <laughs> Which novel began Cage Baker's company series? Oh. John DiNardo. In the Garden of Eden. Well done. That's right. You're making a comeback. Yeah, it certainly are. It's, That's uh, true. Mr. John Joseph Adams, had a bit of sweat coming on your brow there as well. I just I do believe it's still, <laughs> things are starting to fall apart. <laughs> what episode of the original Star Trek was originally penned before revisions by Hal Nelson? David Curley. Uh, the City on the Edge of Forever. Well done, sir. That's correct. JP, we're going to have a stern talking to this Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, man, you're fast on the trigger. <laughs> what dystopian Edgar Allan Poe described in an... What dystopian story by Edgar Allan Poe described travel in an airship? Come on, Brave New World guy. No. Uh, Geeks, David? It's... Um, into the, whoops, what my computer just freaked out. Uh, oh, what's it called? Into the... Um, no. No. <laughs> just stop um. there. I can't even pronounce it, so I'm going to get Amy to pronounce it. <laughs> Melanta Tauta. Oh, that's not the one I was thinking of. Then. Oh. You're thinking of Descent into the Maelstrom, which is another yeah. great story, but different one. No, but, right. But good, good, good guess. Here we go. Next one, then. There's a quick one. Which science fiction television series fans are known as... Brown coats. 
Oh, John Donardo there, straight away. Oh. Well done there, sir. Well done there. Poor shit. <laughs> <laughs> what is the full... What is the first full-length novel of Connie Willis' award-winning Oxford time travel series? JP Franz. Doomsday Book. Well done, sir. That's correct. Oh, John, that... Oh, me, David, you better start getting your act together. Mm. Right. Right. What Philip K. Dick novel inspired the film Blade Runner? I think that was John DiNardo. What? Oh, I think so too. Oh. Android stream of electric sheep. <laughs> That's right. David's looking round behind him. For me, for <laughs> is that <laughs> Encyclopedia of Science Fiction behind you, David? Oh yeah, I went there. <laughs> <laughs> this is becoming quite a competition gotta, now. It's getting get close. Get this in be- while I can. Right, what, Amy? What is the scores on the doors then? Um, let's see. I've got a uh, fourteen and a half for Geek's Guide, and I have uh, nine for SF Signal. Ooh, ah. So it's a it's a close game. I'm going to see if the light works. I'm just going to try and put a light on because I'm actually. I should have, I should have fought for that thirty three percent of the points. <laughs> You're going to wind up winning by a half. <laughs> right. Which original Arthur Conan Doyle tale did Arthur C. Clarke call the best science fiction story with Sherlock Holmes in? John DiNardo. Uh, the Lost World? No. It was a, you said it was a Sherlock Holmes story? Right? Which original... Uh, Hand of the Basket? Right. Which, Hand of the Basketball? Yeah. No, sorry, no. Mm. <sighs> it is the best, mm. though. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. No answers. It was the Adventures of the Devil's Foot. Hmm. There we okay. go. We're on to question 31 of, I think it's 45. So we, we we're running a little bit over, but I'm sure Pete, Mr. Pete Watts will be kind of in anticipation. Arkham House <laughs> Press was established to publish the works of the which late author, David Curtley. H.P. Lovecraft. Well done, sir. Get this one in already. Who said, and you can jump in, Amy, keep an eye because it'll be quick. Who said you can jump in any time? Within 30 years, we will have the technology means to create superhuman intelligence. Shortly after, the human era will end it. Who said that? Hmm. Are, are you ready, Amy? Because it's going to come I don't see jumping, Tony. <laughs> did, any, <laughs> did anyone know that? Come on, you must know that one. Uh, mm. Honestly, I thought that would be the, one of the a, easiest questions. Go on then, JP. Vinji. That's well done, sir. Mm. Oh, oh, God. Yeah. Right. Obviously. And and was that... Could who was that? Who just, I'm sorry. That was JP okay. Franz, SF Signal. Gotcha. Gotcha, JP. How about, how about, how about a first name? Because there's another author named Vinji, by the way. <laughs> oh, you see, Werner, Werner, Werner. Okay, okay. It is getting it's getting a little bit bit. It's getting a little bit bitter now. Eh? The tensions are getting he a little Vinci. bit. Yeah. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? Here we go. Which Monty Python actor appeared as the Inquisitor Jack Lint in the classic dystopian film Brazil? Which Monty Python actor? Oh, God. John Donardo. Yes. Uh, was it Palin? Well Palin? done, yes. well done, sir. Ah. Which John W. Campbell novella inspired the films The Thing from Another World, 1951? John Donardo, I haven't finished, but you no, can answer. No. Who goes there? That wasn't even close, come on. That's a, come on, just a, 
I'll tell you what. I want, I want, a, I want a, is, uh, like instant replay on some of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, this is where that, uh, that, that payment uh, ahead of time comes into play. It's uh. where it all works. How, how much did Tony charge you? <laughs> <laughs> I got no kickbacks. I'm feeling really left out here, Tony. Right then, last question 35. Who said science fiction is the most important literature of the world because it's the history of ideas, the history of our civilization birthing itself? I'll take a guess. I have no idea, but uh, Asimov? No. I'm not going to read it again because I mucked it up. Civilization birthing mm-hmm. itself. <laughs> David? Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke? No. That's kind of era. Go on then, Mr. John Joseph Adams. Damon Knight? I'm just going to guess Damon <laughs> Knight if I don't know. <laughs> just, 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 right. I'm no? Ray Bradbury. Okay. Ah! Right. Are we ready? Question 36. Which iconic TV television series include the characters Avon and Villa? We've just been talking about it today on the show. John Joseph Adams. Uh, I don't know, Red Dwarf? No, how dare you? Come on, you... <laughs> you dare. You've mortally offended him for forever. <laughs> David Curley. I don't know, I'm going to guess Lost in Space. No, it's a British one. There's a clue. I'm giving you a clue for half a point. Blake Seven. Uh, Blake no. 7. Right. Oh, okay. I guess you'd have to watch it to know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it helps. <laughs> <laughs> Question 38. Can you tell me what the M stands for in Ian M. Banks? Oh. Uh. Anybody. What does the M stand for in Ian uh. M. Banks? Mm. Geek Sky of the Galaxy, David Kirtley. <laughs> Good. <ahead>. Uh, Malcolm? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. John DiNardo. I was just going to say Millhouse to be funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> Millhouse? I'll guess, uh, I'll guess Michael, but I don't. No, it's a strange one. It is Menzies. Oh, right, right. I didn't know that, yeah. And actually, there was used to be a newspaper chain over in England called Menzies as well, but there we go. Let's... Right, another one. Who said science fiction is the very... Li- actually, Tony, mm-hmm. Tony, this one appears to be a repeat. Right. That's my fault on the list, so sorry about that. You've asked and answered already. <laughs> didn't ah. didn't sorry even, about that. I didn't even know. You know what I mean? <laughs> Would have been great to see if we still got it, though. Still That's right. It. Yeah. Were you paying attention? Right. I'm going to miss 40 because I'll struggle with all that kind of thing. Which award-winning <laughs> series included character affectionately known as the Idiot Ivan? I'm just talking about this. Which award-winning series included the character affectionately known as the Idiot Ivan? You can tell none of them have come in and watched the bloody show. Special guest. <laughs> David Curley, what can I do for you? The prisoner? Mm. 
Mr. John Joseph Adams. Listen, I'm going to just tear these pages no? up and go home. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a literature, all literature, man. It's, this is literature. literature. You can't this get is any. Book b- series. Come on. Oh, oh, okay. oh, I, thought you, oh. I, thought, I thought it was a TV series. I mean, I still don't oh, know the no, answers, no. but. Right, so oh, I know, I know that. I know that. Wait, I know that. Can I go? Yeah, on. go on. In. I'm 100% sure I know that. Okay. okay. Uh, it's the Lois McMaster Bushold's uh, Miles Warkowski series. Well done, there David. Well oh, done. Okay. Yes, see. Right. And that idiot Ivan's novel, uh, Captain Vorpatrol's mm-hmm. Alliance, is up for the right. Hugo this year. And if it wins, she will have won more Hugos for best novel than any author alive or dead. She'll set a new mm-hmm. record, beating Heinlein's record that she currently has tied with. Just FYI for those of you just joining us. <laughs> I guess right. that's not one of the questions. Right now, up. I'm going to give I'm going to yeah. I'm going to give you a clue here. So, Amy, the first one to kind of shout out the clue there, John Joseph Adams. This is the clue coming up there. You should get this one. Who said? <laughs> We live on a minute island of known things. Our undiminished wonder of a, at the mystery of the, which surrounds us is what makes us human. Oh, I saw that, David. That's not the quote I thought it was. Uh, <laughs> well, answer it anyway. Uh, uh, islands minute makes us what? Human. Um, <laughs> uh, we live on a minute island of known things. Our undiminished, undiminished wonder at the mystery which surrounds us is what makes us human. Did Douglas Adams? I give you the clue. You've been answering the same guy's name all through Damon the time. Damon Knight. Ah, well done. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Damon Knight. Damon well Knight. <laughs> oh, Damon Knight. Okay. Well, that was... John- yeah, see, you tricked me with that clue. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, Douglas Adams, and you said John Joseph Adams, and I was like, all right. Well, well that point goes to SF Signals, John DiNardo. <laughs> oh, right. yeah. Here we go. Which, <laughs> which SF series starred and was produced by an actor who turned down the role of James Bond twice? Uh, can you repeat the question? Which science fiction series starred and was produced by an actor who turned who turned down the role of James Bond twice? Um, John Joseph Adams. I, I mean, I want to guess that it's in relation to Pierce Brosnan. So I don't know, Remington Steele. It, was that a science fiction show? I don't, I don't know. I, no, that was, that was no, that's knowing both accounts. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a guess. Go on then, JP. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll say The Prisoner. Well done. Excellent. Yes. yes. Oh, sweet. The actor was Patrick McGowan. Hmm. Two questions left. I don't want to know What's the, the score? scores. No scores yet. Let's, let's see. Two questions. Oh, no, okay. Which Terry Pratchett novel features a sentient planet as the godfather of the protagonist? JP, yep. John did not. JP. Uh, uh, I'll say, you know, Strata. No. Oh, can I get? You can said, I guess yes, go on, John. Hogfather? No. Do you have a curly John Joseph Adams? I, I was going to say Strata too. Um, uh, Deep of Time. Nope. Um, uh, what's up? Uh, what's. <laughs> What's the one he wrote with Ter- uh, with Neil Gaiman? Uh, uh, Good Omens. Good Omens? No. Yeah. All right, well, we all... Right, we're all out. It is The Dark Side of the Sun. 
Ah. Right. The final question of Sofa Con's <laughs> quiz of the century there. SF Signal against <laughs> Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Da, 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 da. This is the final question. What work... Worth a million points. Oh, yes. What work won the 2012 Philip K. Dick Award? Ah. Um... Ah, is the wrong answer. I know, I was going to say, someone kicked you. Is it one of them little kids kicked you? Yes. yes. (laughs) What work won the 2012 Philip K. Dick Award? Come on, man. John Japer, you've probably wrote this in in your blog a many times. I think it proves they don't read what they write. (laughs) (laughs) I do a lot of awards posts. You have very poor awards knowledge. The 2012, the last question, mm. Philip K. Dick Award, who won it? What I work? I hate this when what? you tell us the answer. Right then. It is the Samuel Petrovich trilogy by Simon Modern. Morden. Uh, Morden. I would have never, never gotten that. Well, I did. No. Yeah, uh, that is the questions. We uh-huh. have come to the final end. It's Geek Sky the Galaxy up against SF Signal. Couldn't Amy. Amy H. Sturgis, can we have the scores? For all of the trash talk, this was a very close (laughs) contest. Uh, For for SF Signal, I have 14 points. And for the win, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, 16.5. Close, close contest. Well Well done. done. Hey, well done. Everybody can hold their heads up there. (laughs) Virtual high five. Well, I'm, I'm, I think we've started a new careers. There'll be someone else doing a quiz like this next week as well. So, listen, well done. That was fantastic. And John, JP, you know, commiserations, but, it, you know, you come back so close, to be quite honest. So I'm, the whole, Geek's Guide's hoping you'll do a nice post on them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks. No, he's a welcome. Listen, gentlemen, ladies, Amy, hopefully, we'll, Amy, if you stay around just for a little bit and then we'll I'll say goodbye to everyone here. JP, it's been lovely having you on, sir. Thank you very much. John Donardo. Thank you, Tony. That was good investment in them laser guns. <laughs> well done, sir. And David Curley and John Joseph Adams. Honestly, big high, big high fives there, sir. Thank you very much. Right. Amy, how, how about that then? Do we... Um... Very, very good. It was nice that it was neck and neck there at the end. It was an exciting contest. It was, um, I was really impressed, to be quite honest. I thought it would all go a little bit pear-shaped, but, you know, it, um, it went, it worked. And, like you say, <laughs> it was very close at the end because I, I actually thought at the beginning, SF Signal were just going to go down, 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 but... <laughs> Come, come back to later. No, but Geek's Guide rallied there. I'm so, you know what I mean? So there you go. That was the quiz. Yes, Geek's Guide of the Galaxy beat SF Signal in the very first SofaCon quiz. And I've got ideas for that. Anyways, you know, coming in the future, maybe a, a quiz scenario but we'll i'll keep stum on that for now until i get you know i'm good i'm good on my holidays and that reminds us we are coming off the the airwaves for a few weeks it might be two it might be three but starting from next week i think it'll be the sixth the sorry the the seventh and the 14th 
possibly I'll get a show out on the 21st. We'll see how it goes. But definitely the 7th and the 14th of August, we're on stuff as powering down our engines. We're taking a little break. And to be quite honest, I need it. Do you mean Sovacon just was, yeah, I loved it. But you know what I mean? It kind of stress levels right up to the top. You know what I mean? Just even on the day, hours before, I was getting emails. And Amy was getting emails saying, you know, of different guests. Right, am I due to come on at this time? And it was totally the wrong time. And you're thinking, oh, no, no. So, totally want to rest and kind of I want to recharge the batteries. So, there we go. Let's get into the final story by Harry Turtledove. I mean, it's just been a, a fantastic show. And I'm honored to kind of have this many stories, you know, by Harry. What a great concept Adam's put together to do the show like this. Adam, I can't thank you again. I can't thank you enough for kind of coming on as assistant editor for Starship Sova and just taking, just taking it, you know, and running in your direction. I'm so happy you're kind of, you're doing your own things. I'm more than happy to let kind of people have a, you know, just what they want to bring to the kind of the show as well. And Adam, you've done a fantastic job and he has hope in many years to come, sir, as well, because I know you're a busy lad as well in your own kind of lifestyle. But Adam, what can I say? It's, it's been a lovely pleasure to have you working here on the sofa. So, the last part of the fiction is the barbecue, the movie, and other, unfortunately, not-so-relevant material. The story hit the newsstands in 1986, Analog Science Fiction magazine, then it was put into Departures, and this is narrated by Mike Boris. They couldn't have a show, you know, that kind of celebrating everything that Starship Sova raised, all the narrations and everything like that, great stories, without Mike. Mike has just turned in some spectacular short stories, you know, narrations out there as well, and been ups and downs in his own life as well, you know what I mean? And I appreciate what Mike's done for the sofa, and it just, you know, it's, again, turned into a true friend, and it's only a few miles of, like, the Atlantic that's, you know, Stop my getting together, but one day maybe you never know. Mike, it's a lovely narration and it's been a pleasure working with you, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The barbecue, the movie, and other unfortunately not so relevant material. TG Khan looked out the window at the traffic going by on Imperial Highway. He wished he were under the warm Los Angeles summer sunshine instead of sitting here cooped up in an office trying to put a newsletter together. He sighed. He had gone through some impressive finagling to get an office he could see out of. Until a few weeks ago, he had worked in an enormous interior room, the kind where you needed to leave a trail of breadcrumbs to find your way through the maze of partitions. Cubicle, sweet cubicle, one typist sampler read, which perfectly summed up the place. The newsletter he was writing bored even him. He sighed again. It beats sleeping on a park bench, I suppose, he said out loud and mounted another dispirited attack on his word processor. The phone rang, its chime booming like Big Ben over the soft, incessant music. Khan's fingers jerked. A rash of consonants broke out on the screen. He stared at them reproachfully as he picked up the receiver. T.G. Khan. Someone here to see you, Mr. Khan. Thank you, Doris. His secretary still worked across the corridor in the huge office from which he had recently escaped. Send him in. Yes, sir, Doris said and giggled. Khan wondered if his ears were playing tricks on him. Doris hadn't even cracked a smile for the limerick about the crypt at St. Giles, whereupon he had given her up as a hopeless case. 
The door to his office came open. So did his mouth. The door closed. His mouth stayed open. The man who walked into his office was in his late twenties, a few years younger than Khan, and looked vaguely Semitic. He had a thick Fu Manchu mustache and the strangest hairdo Khan had ever seen. And living in Los Angeles, Khan had seen some Lulus. The top of the man's head was shaved. So was a strip that ran from ear to ear through the bare spot on top, and an inch or so on the forehead. The rest grew long in greasy braids. The man wore a heavy fur coat over leather trousers and boots. He must have been dying out there in the heat. Khan thought. Two scabbards hung at the fellow's belt, one holding a knife, the other a curved sword. He smelled of sweat and rancid butter. The worst thing was that Khan recognized the costume, though not the person in it. He rose from his chair, feeling hot blood rush to his face. He had not been in a fight since the sixth grade, but he wanted to punch this fellow's lights out. If you're not a singing telegram, pal, you're in big trouble," he said between clenched teeth. The man did not burst into song. Khan, who tended to think too much for his own good, took another look at the cutlery the fellow was carrying and decided that trying to kill him might not be such a good idea after all. He stood irresolutely, and the moment passed. His shoulders sagged. "Very goddamn funny," he said bitterly, hearing the weakness in his own voice and hating it. "I presume you know my father." To his amazement, the man in front of him went down on his knees, then thumped his forehead on the cheap indoor-outdoor office carpet. The door clicked shut at the same time. That made the stale, greasy stench worse, but it also kept anybody walking down the hall from seeing what was going on inside. Fat lot of good that would do, Khan realized. He clapped a hand to his forehead in horrified dismay. Doris, damn her blabbering soul, would spread this all over the office, and so would everyone else who had spotted this cow-towing weirdo. How would he ever be able to look people in the face again? He had to drag his attention back to the fellow who, his face still against the nubbly knit nylon, had started to talk. No, Excellency. He was saying in a voice Khan seemed to hear between his ears rather than with them. Never did I have the privilege of meeting that great hero, Yasugi. I say, you are good," Khan said with grudging admiration. Not one in a million knew who Yasugi was or cared. He wished, oh, how he wished he didn't himself. What are you, one of Dad's grad students? If you wanted to get a hold of me, why didn't you just call? The man lifted his head from the rug and looked at Khan with as much perplexity as Khan was giving him. I had not thought to find the phrase "grad student" on your lips, mighty lord. Khan's head was starting to spin. The most likely idea he'd had, and it wasn't very, was that the maniac who would not get off the rug was some Syrian or Egyptian studying with his dad who wanted a favor from him. That would explain the flowery speech, at least. Why the fellow had to get into costume for that, though, was beyond him. Look, tell me what you want and take off, okay? He said. The stranger's head went thump on the carpet again. Merely the boon of observing you for a brief while, mighty lord. That was so far from anything Khan had expected that he blurted, "Who the devil do you think I am, anyway? Surely your excellency can be no one else but Temujin Genghis Khan." Yes, thanks to my old man, I am Temujin Genghis Khan," Khan said, wishing for the nine millionth time that his father had dug ditches for a living instead of being a professor of Mongol history.
It had made him the only first grader at Oakdale Elementary School ever to be called exclusively by his initials. The fellow on the floor went on as if he had not spoken. Unifier of the Mongols, conqueror of North China, subduer of the Khwarezm Shah, ravager of Russia, builder of the hugest empire the world has ever seen, tech writer, in debt, divorced, driving an old Toyota. Khan finished the litany. He looked down at the stranger groveling before him. You're carrying on as if I were the real one or something. That hangdog, puzzled look was back on the man's face. Again, you use strange terms, Okan. Assure me, I pray, the Pangloss property renders my words into the Mongol speech. Mongol, Khan was too far out of his depth not to come back with the automatic truth. This is English. English, the stranger's eyebrows rose. I have heard of it. I think. This is not the imperial yurt at Karakorum. It's Los Angeles. Where? They stared at one another, each plainly convinced the other was crazy. At last, the stranger said in a small voice, "Tell me the date, please." Huh? It's、uh, July sixteenth. The year. Now, positive he was humoring a madman, Khan gave it to him. The next question confused him for a moment. In what era is that? He finally figured out the meaning. Christian, A.D., Anno Domini. The Common Era, C.E. If you don't care for the Christian dating of any flavor. One of those terms must have been familiar to the stranger. He screwed up his face and began to swear in a style that was bizarre but effective just the same. Khan filed a couple of the choicer epithets to use himself. Lizard piss could come in handy almost any time, but he decided to save "sucker at the tit of a syphilitic sow" for when he really needed it. Say when a Mercedes cut him off on the freeway. When the stranger finally ran out of oaths, he turned a face full of storm clouds on Khan. You are certain this is not Central Asia in what you would call, let me think, the early thirteenth century? Not the last time I looked, Khan said solemnly. He wished he could remember the security guard's extension, but instead of turning violent, the man in the Mongol clothes burst into tears. Khan watched, amazed, as he unashamedly wept until he had cried himself out. At last, the stranger pulled himself together. He smacked fist into palm in frustration. Oh, to have come so close and still missed! What are seven hundred miserable little years against fifty or sixty thousand? Khan's head was aching badly by now. He had had as much of this exchange as he could stand. I'm so sorry," he said with exquisite ironic politeness. "You must be a time traveler, sir. And all this time I took you for a nut." The stranger waved it aside. "A natural error." However, if I were a nut, I would not be able to do this. For instance, afterward, Khan would have sworn the fellow only pointed his finger at the office window, the window he had schemed so long and hard to get. A ray of blue light shot from the stranger's fingernail. The next moment, the glass wasn't there anymore. July smog immediately started competing with the bland but breathable product the air conditioner turned out. Khan coughed. The stranger's eyes went ecstatic. They also began filling with tears that had nothing to do with emotions. The scent of burning hydrocarbons! He exclaimed, breathing deeply, at least until he choked. Undoubtedly, from buildings torched in the search for loot. No, from dinosaurs torched in the search for a parking space. Khan's tongue let its own life, wild and free. 
while he just tried to figure out whether he believed what he had just seen. He decided he did. His eyes might fool him, but he trusted his lungs. No way they could hurt so much unless the window glass really had disappeared. To have come so close, the stranger said again. Now that he was no longer abasing himself, Khan saw the motions of his lips did not match the words the tech writer was hearing. The fellow shook his head in chagrin. There goes my academic career, all because the scrofulous temporal phase link dropped me into the late middle first primitive instead of the mid-middle. He started to cry again. He seemed to be talking more to himself than to Khan, but his, what did he call it, his pangloss kept working. I can't understand it. I was supposed to home in on the mental vibrations of Temujin Genghis Khan. He and Khan realized at the same time what must have happened. Fury replaced the tears. Khan waited for that finger to blast him to wherever the window had gone. The look on the fellow's face said that might not be good enough. The sword might come out instead. Then the stranger tried to master himself. It was a visible process and audible. Because I observe savages, Khan heard. Must I behave as one? His earlier wild mood swings made yes an all-too-likely answer to that. Khan said quickly, Can't you just go on to the Temujin you really wanted to see? It doesn't work that way, the stranger answered bleakly. Once I am out of the temporal flow, returning only snaps me back to my own time. And then, what am I? A graduate student in ancientest history, without fieldwork, without a dissertation, and a laughingstock for the entire collegium. For the first time, he seemed a real person to Khan, because the tech writer understood what he was feeling. His own education had ground to an ignominious halt a few months after he'd got his bachelor's degree, when he had to admit his brain simply was not up to graduate work in physics, that being a subject as remote from Mongol history as possible. He said, Maybe you could do work on your 20th century America instead of the Mongols. I don't know anything about the late middle first primitive the time-traveler said petulantly. Narrow specialization looked to be a universal constant. Maybe if you had a guide. Anything, Khan thought, to get this fellow's mind off his anger and off his ferocious finger. I could do it, if you like. We've come a long way since the 13th century, you know. I doubt it. Stung by the morose dismissal, Khan snapped, I'm going home in a few minutes. Come along if you want, or else don't. I'll come, the stranger said, sighing. I may as well. It won't help, though. Nothing will help. He was so woebegone that Khan's sympathy revived. It won't be so bad. You'll get to see just about all of Los Angeles during the ride. As far as he could remember, that was the first time he'd ever had anything good to say about his daily commute. He lived in Reseda, in the western part of the San Fernando Valley, about 45 miles northwest of where he worked. Some days it felt as if he spent more time in his car than on the job. After saving the document he had been working on when the time traveler had arrived, Khan undid his tie, slung his sport coat over his shoulder, and said, Well, let's go. Uh, what do I call you, anyhow? My name is Lassaporp Rof. My friends would call me Rof. You may call me Lassaporp. So there, Khan thought as they walked out of the building. The security guard gave Lassaporp Roth an odd look, but only a brief one. Clothes did not make the man. Not in L.A. The time traveler showed a small revival of interest in the parking lot. 
This is your trusty Mongol steed, Temujin Genghis Khan, able to travel long distances without tiring. You can call me T.G., Khan said, pleased to get a little of his own back. And this is my trusty Japanese Toyota Lassaporp, able to travel long distances without running out of gas. Lassaporp Rolf grunted and got in. How far must we fare to your yurt? he asked when the tech writer had joined him. My condo, Khan corrected absently. How is it you know all this Mongol history without knowing anything else? Some records of the Mongols survive the first great lacuna, to be translated into snoit. That's your language? Gods and goddesses, no, but it was a liturgical language all through the first intermediate and the second primitive, up to about 19,000 years before my time. Oh. How long would the journey to your yurt take, T.G.? Lassa Porporov asked as Khan got on the I-605 going north. The tech writer ignored the slip. He was concentrating on his driving. An hour if there were no traffic, an hour and a half on a regular sort of day, two hours if things jam up bad. Close to a dozen different combinations of freeways would get him home. None was much faster than any of the others. The first choke point was on the Santa Ana Freeway, where it narrowed from four lanes to three a little south of the junction with the Long Beach Freeway. Traffic crawled along, but by moving from lane to lane, Khan was able to stay right at 60. He blinked. He couldn't remember holes opening up so conveniently. He was not about to complain, though. We are passing cattle? Lhasa Porporov asked. We're passing trucks, Khan said. He glanced over at his passenger. Don't you know the difference between animals and machines? What is a machine? Defeated, Khan gave his attention back to the road. The Santa Monica and the Hollywood freeways branched off the Santa Ana a little east of town. He took the Hollywood. That was the shortest route, even if it always did knot up just north of the Civic Center. And it was knotted. Except that, as before, spaces kept appearing like magic for Khan. Other drivers looked at him with envious disbelief as he slid from one to the next. He had never seen anything like it. The second time he had that thought, his head snapped around toward Lassa Porporov, He'd never ridden with a time traveler before, either. Do you have anything to do with this? he demanded. With what? Lassa Porporov asked. Oh, do you mean am I helping us get through the herd? I find this nomadic excursion grows boring after a while, so I'm exerting a slight probability distortion to help us along. I can take it off if you like. That's all right, Khan said hastily. He did not even bother correcting Lassa Porporov about the right name for the traffic jam. Plenty of times he'd felt like one wandering sheep in a million. I wish I could do it, that's all. Can't you? Lassa Porporov said, surprised yet again. Here, let me induce you. It will help pass the time. He put his hand on the back of Khan's head. As the tech rider drove, he began to have a feel for where a hole in traffic might be. Could be. Would be was. Guiding the car into that hole was as easy as breathing. They were nearly at the junction of the Hollywood and Ventura freeways when Lassa Porporov said, Now you're doing it all yourself. Am I? By God, I am! Maneuvering the Toyota as if it were a halfback dodging clumsy tacklers, Khan felt grateful enough to do anything this side of human sacrifice for Lassa Porporov. He even thought about putting the time traveler on a plane to North Carolina to meet his father. To him, though, anything to do with his dad was not this side of human sacrifice. He had an idea. 
Instead of staying on the westbound Ventura, he went north on the San Diego freeway several miles to Devonshire, got off, went up to Chatsworth Boulevard, then headed west. He was whistling when he pulled into the parking lot. This is your yurt? No, your condo, you called it? Lassaporproff asked. No, this is a Mongolian barbecue place, a restaurant that serves Mongolian-style food, Khan said. When Lassaporproff looked blank, Khan went on. When you go back to whenever your own time is, won't you want to be able to tell everyone about the authentic, well, sort of authentic, he amended mentally, Mongol feast you had back in the first primitive? You wouldn't even be lying. For the first time since Lassaporporov had discovered Khan was not a world conqueror and mass murderer, the time traveler actually looked happy. Thank you, T.G. Perhaps I may yet bring some valuable knowledge with me, after all. Yes, let us go in. A bored Oriental woman seated them and handed them menus. She does not even recognize my costume, Lassaporporov said plaintively. How can she be a real Mongol? She probably isn't. Mongolia and the United States, this country, aren't friendly with each other. Ah, still you live in fear of the savage Mongol horsemen. Not quite, Khan said. And he was saved from disappointing Lassaporporov with further explanations when the waitress came back. He ordered tea for both of them and steamed rice, then pointed to the trays of meats and vegetables lined up in front of the barbecue, saying, We'll build our own. That was what most people did. She nodded and left. Khan led Lassaporporov up to the food. After they had taken bowls, the tech writer said, There's lamb, beef, pork, and turkey. Help yourself. He wielded the set of aluminum tongs in each tray. Imitating him, Lassaporporov said, These are sliced thin so as to cook quickly? That's right, Khan grinned. It was the first question the time traveler had asked that actually made sense. Khan added sliced onions, bean sprouts, celery, and cilantro to his bowl, then splashed hot barbecue sauce and curry sauce over the contents. Spicy, he warned, but Lassaporporov again followed suit. Then Khan handed his full bowl to the cook beside the round barbecue griddle that was the most nearly genuine part of the whole operation. The cook grinned, displaying gold teeth. He upended the bowl. Meat and vegetables snarled as they hit the hot iron. The cook stirred them with a long-handled wooden spoon, shivvied them three-fourths of the way around the griddle, then deftly put them back in the bowl. Khan returned to his seat while the cook barbecued Lassaporporov's dinner. The time traveler watched, fascinated. When he rejoined Khan, the tech writer had to show him how to use a fork. He held it as if it were a dagger. His eyes watered at the first mouthful, but he bravely emptied his bowl, exclaiming, I feel as if I'm tasting history. Having no atmosphere, the place was not expensive. Khan peeled off a ten, a five, and a couple of singles and left them on the table, as he and Lassaporporov walked out. The time traveler said, Though you are enemies of the Mongols, I see your people has adopted their custom of paper money. Uh, yes. Lassaporporov looked around as they were getting back into Khan's car. The landscape was typical valley urban sprawl. A couple of gas stations, a 7-Eleven, a donut shop, street lights, and cars, cars, cars. The time traveler sighed. This is not the step, I suppose. Does it look like the step? Khan asked. He had meant it as a rhetorical question, but realized it wasn't. How would Lassaporporov know what the step looked like?
I really wish I could see the step. Lassapor Brav sounded so sad that Khan wished he had kept some of the books his father had pushed on him instead of unloading them because they reminded him of his god-awful name. They would have given the time traveler some pictures of Mongol life. Picture! The force of the inspiration made Khan want to hug himself with glee. He fired up the Toyota. Come on, Lassaporp, I'll show you the step, by God. Is it close by? The time traveler asked eagerly. Khan drove through several lights that probably should have turned red but stayed green. He was learning. He pulled into a small shopping center. Wait for me here. I won't be long. Amuse yourself quietly till I come back. He hurried into the record store across the way. When he got back with his package, he gasped and thanked his lucky stars he hadn't parked by the big display window. Close your coat, he shouted. You told me to amuse myself. I said amuse, not abuse. Sweating, Khan shook his head in relief that no one had happened by. Never mind, not your fault. It's not our custom to do that kind of thing in public, that's all. Lassapor Brof let out an audible sniff. The drive back to Khan's condominium went faster than it had any right to. Lassaporprov was sulkily silent until they were actually inside and Khan flicked on a light. That is not fire. I've seen fire. It flickers. It's done with electrically heated wire. When Khan saw that meant nothing to the time traveler, he said, Well, what do your people use for artificial light? Sun pills, of course, was what he heard through Lassaporprov's pangloss. It made no more sense to him than his explanation had to Lassapor Brof. He gave up. Waving the time traveler to his couch, he said, Sit down. Make yourself at home. Can I get you a beer? A, a cold, mildly alcoholic drink? Khan laughed at himself. He was starting to give definitions without even thinking about it. Yes, thank you. When the tech writer came back with two cans of cores, he found Lassapor Prof examining the Israeli-made menorah that decorated his coffee table. What a strange coincidence, the time traveler said, picking it up. If you had one of these in my own time, I would think you were Jewish. Very strange, Khan mumbled. With some reluctance, he let it go at that. It was either let go or spend the next three weeks asking questions. He turned on the television. Lassaporprov watched curiously as the screen lit up in bright colors and music came out of the speaker. It was a denture-adhesive commercial. Feeling his cheeks grow hot, Khan was glad to get rid of it and turn on his VCR. The warning about unauthorized duplication at the front of the tape meant nothing to Lassaporprov, and this time the tech writer did not bother to explain. Then the movie came on. A 1964 epic starring James Mason, Omar Sharif, Robert Morley and a Telly Savalas who still had hair. Khan realized the time traveler could not read the credits rolling across the screen. It's called Genghis Khan, he said helpfully. Lassaporp Rolf almost jumped out of his furs and leathers. This is a real record of his life? No, a drama based on it. How could it be a real record, Lassaporp? We can't travel in time. First primitive, Lassaporp Rolf said, as if reminding himself. That did not keep him from being a spellbound audience for the Far Eastern horse opera. Khan had only seen parts of it on late-night TV. The knowledge of Mongol history his father had crammed down his unwilling throat made him wince at the inaccuracies. But Lassaporf Raf was plainly eating it up, battles, overwritten love scenes, and all. 
When it was done, the time traveler said, Let me see it again, so I am sure I have the sense impressions fixed in my memory. Together with the meal, it should give me enough material to keep my professors happy. Khan blanched. Watching this two-hour turkey once had been bad. Going through it twice came close to cruel and unusual punishment. As he watched, he felt a twinge of guilt at what he was doing to far future historiography. He stifled it, but it made him wonder how much of what his father called historical fact was based on similarly trashy sources. A good bit, probably. He smiled, liking the idea. At last the ordeal was over. Lassaporp Roth leaned over and kissed Khan on both cheeks, then square on the mouth. Thank you, T.G., thank you, thank you, he said. And then he was gone, vanishing suddenly and silently as a popped soap bubble. Khan blinked and shook himself like a man emerging from a dream. He wondered if the evening had been just that, or an out-and-out hallucination. But his living room still reeked of rancid butter, and there were beer cans on both ends of the coffee table. And never in his wildest nightmares would he have rented Genghis Khan. Besides, tomorrow morning the janitor would be asking him where his office window had gone. And there was that probability distortion stunt. He looked at his watch and saw to his surprise that it was only a little past ten. Thanks to Lassaporp Rolf's trick, he really had made good time on the road. He got out his address book, picked up the telephone, and punched buttons. Hello? Jennifer? Hi, this is T.G. Feel like dinner and a movie Saturday? He held his breath with the effort of bending the odds, then let it out in a disappointed gust as she said she was going to a party that night. That made the third time she told him no. But I'd love to, the weekend after, she finished. Khan made the arrangements and hung up, feeling a bit like a world conqueror after all. And there you go. Big thank you to Harry for letting me play five of his stories. Harry, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. It is show 300, a celebration of everything that is Starship Sofa. And it's been lovely that it kind of coincided with SofaCon as well. It wasn't planned that way. It just happened where SofaCon was a couple of days ago. And again, that was just a real big celebration of everything that Starship Sofa. If you really got what we do, if you get this kind of community little hive that we've got going over here, that's fantastic. And that was, it was lovely to have you as a board. I want to say again, I can't enhance enough how much the donations mean to keep this thing going, to keep it going all the time. Do you know what I mean? I haven't kind of run out of enthusiasm to do the show. Do you know what I mean? But you kind of, we do run out of kind of funds from time to time. And it's just been, heartwarming how he's kept this going and you know the, the donations came in do you know what I mean that was fantastic a big thank you to everyone that's kind of done that who's kind of come up to the mark and kind of support we're in this year do you know what I mean it has been a little bit kind of difficult early on there again I'm not kidding you how bad it was this is so far I thought it was really bad you know what I mean so you stepped up the mark and you've proved you're amazing people Show 300 is now put to bed. We're having a couple of weeks off again. Thank you so much. I will see you when we get back. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.